Imagine living your life after 50 and feeling energized and excited about your future. Welcome to the Women in the Middle podcast, the podcast for women who are ready to figure out what they want and create the life they deserve. Here's your host and master certified life coach, Susie Rosenstein. Hey there, in today's episode, I'm going to introduce you to somebody who pivoted her way to passion and started something new and incredibly fulfilling in her 60s. Welcome back to the podcast, Women in the Middle, with over a million downloads and counting. I'm your host, Susie Rosenstein, your master certified coach, a midlife mentor, and I am so glad to be here with you again. Okay, so I've mentioned a few times over the years how much I love to sniff out a good story. I kind of think it's my superpower. (laughs) So today's interview is one of those situations. My guest today invited me to be on her podcast first, and that's how I met her. As we were getting to know each other, I couldn't stop asking her questions out of sheer curiosity. She was super interesting, and of course, I couldn't wait to introduce her to you here, and I really can't wait for you to hear her story today. But just quick, I have a new opportunity to tell you about. I'll soon be launching a new sister podcast called Women in the Middle Entrepreneurs, and I'm currently looking for guests. So if you're a woman in the middle who's 50 plus and also an entrepreneur or business owner, this new podcast is especially for you. This show will be focused on what it's really like to run a business when you're over 50 and dealing with the classic midlife obstacles and challenges, things like taking care of your aging parents empty nest, menopause, lack of self-care, and work-life balance, that sort of stuff. When all of this comes up, it can be harder to focus on your priorities. That is for sure. So if you're interested in learning more about how to be a guest on this new podcast, head over to www.midlifeinterviews.com and apply. There's lots more information there so you can see if you're a good fit for this show. Okay, let me introduce you to my amazing guest today on the podcast. Today's episode is called How Poker Led to Helping Adult Children with Challenges. Now, when you are a serial entrepreneur, you think about all kinds of things that you're good at. It's kind of like you can't turn it off. You're always thinking about what am I good at? What am I interested in? Who can I help? How can I help them the best? What's going on at home? What are my credentials? What are my interests? All that stuff. And that's what it was like for my guest today, who did lots of different jobs and eventually ended up working to help parents develop skills to help their adult children with challenges. Today's guest is Barbara Decker, an incredibly interesting, seasoned entrepreneur who pivoted her way to her passion and an incredibly rewarding career path. Barbara has done all kinds of things professionally. She sold real estate, became a real estate appraiser, became a professional poker player, and worked in IT. Yes, she did all these things and more. Today, Barbara calls herself a parent recovery advocate. When an adult son or daughter is using drugs or alcohol, has a mind disease, or is simply not adulting to his or her potential, moms tend to react with what she calls the mom code. She's in a perfect position to help because she's a certified family recovery specialist and founder of Live Well and Fully. She's also a mom of a son now in long-term recovery. Barbara helps moms shift to the more effective love another way model and allow space in their lives for other things that they desire to do and which fill them up. 
Barbara admits that she wouldn't wish these kinds of challenges on anyone. And she knows personally it can be incredibly tough when a child doesn't launch the way you always imagined he or she would. But she also sees that she wouldn't have grown the way she has without all of the challenges that she experienced. Now she uses her strengths that she didn't even really understand that she had, and it all has served her well. Remember, the information shared in this podcast is intended for your convenience, entertainment, and education, and isn't geared to your personal situation. So, as always, you may have some things you want to follow up on, so please seek a suitable professional to advise you on your personal situation. You are going to get so much from meeting Barbara in this episode, so please enjoy. Hi, Barbara. Thanks so much for joining us today on the Women in the Middle podcast. Thank you for inviting me, Susie. It's a pleasure to be here. And you're one of those women that I met online. And I love that because I can smell a story and you've got a good one. <laughs> so so we met uh, because I you invited me onto your podcast, Live Well and Fully. And like I said, in a matter of minutes, I knew there was a story and I knew there was a story beyond what we were talking about. So that's why I'm so excited to talk to you about today. I love that you're a serial entrepreneur and we are absolutely going to be talking about that. And also because at 65, you settled into what you wanted to be when you grow up. Um, as you said, like it came later in life and you didn't know it was coming, but it came. So we're going to be talking about all of that because creating solutions for moms who have sons and daughters uh, with addiction and drug-related problems of some sort, it's just so, so important. So let's start by talking about your entrepreneurial journey, and then we'll get into what you're doing right now. Does that sound good? Sure does. Okay. Tell us a little bit about what happened with your first entrepreneurial adventure? What was going on in your mind that led you in that particular direction? Well, out of college, I went to work for a company and I did personnel work back before it was HR work. And I discovered after a couple of years that I didn't fit well into a corporate environment. <laughs> How come? <laughs> Because I'm really not a good team player. I really prefer to do things the way I think they ought to be done. And it was hard for me to see things going in directions that I didn't think were optimal. But it was not my business. And so it wasn't my right to say. And so I settled into selling real estate. And I did that for four or five years until I had my first child. At which time, you know, and when I'm pregnant and I'm selling real estate and the world is saying to me, I'm in my 30s, the world is saying to me, what are you going to do when you have this baby? And I say, I'm just going to keep working, and carry on. You know, I have pictures of sleeping baby beside me. Well, first child was not a child who really ever slept. He was colicky. He was crying baby. And my uh, maternal instinct kicked in and I didn't want to work at all, Susie. Mm. I wanted to just be home with my child. And so I took that position and my husband, you know, nearly passed out because here we were putting all of the financial responsibility on him. And I tried that for a while, clipping coupons and trying to keep the costs down and eventually realized that we really weren't going to make it. So I had to think about what could I do that blended with my new circumstances, which was a child that I wanted to spend really all of my time with. Mm. And I 
decided that I could probably appraise real estate. Now, I didn't know how to do that, but the market was such that there were a shortage of appraisers because interest rates were very attractive and there was a lot of refinance activity. And a lot of the local lenders didn't have enough appraisers to meet the demand. And because I was connected to the real estate sales side of the business, I came to know an appraiser from another state who was coming to our state to do work. And he needed help figuring out our neighborhoods and what you could use to compare the house being sold to. And so he wanted to hire somebody to provide that research for him. And I kind of deal with him. I said, look, I'll do that research for free, but I get to go along with you when you appraise houses. I'm going to do my own version of the appraisal. And next time you're in town, you can critique it and tell me what I've done wrong. And that's how I learned how to do it. And then I went and got my own customers, wow. um, et cetera. So um, that worked out really well for probably 25 years. And it grew <laughs> and it shrank and it grew and it shrank, depending on what was going on with interest that, rates. That worked out well for 25 years. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I I would say so. So it gave you the flexibility with a baby. And then Mm -hmm. it sounds like it gave you all the flexibility you needed to raise your kid. Yes. I had the, I had a big, big old ranch house. We lived upstairs and the basement was walkout. I had an office down there. And at one point, you know, 20, 30 people coming in and out, which didn't thrill my neighbors, but we, you know, got through that. Um, Yeah. And it just worked. And the people that worked there could bring their kids. The school was closed and we were overrun with kids and dogs and snow days and all that kind of stuff. But the work (laughs) got done and we had some fun. That's amazing. And then then when didn't it work anymore? Well, you know, I wouldn't actually say that it didn't work so much as something very unexpected happened in my life. And my oldest son, the one that was colicky way back when, continued to present some challenges as we went along. And he was away at a boarding high school for the last couple of years. And he started playing online poker. And I started yelling. And I started scolding. And I started saying, don't you realize that this is, you know, these places are offshore and the house always wins and you're just being foolish. And he took it for a while. And he's like, you know, more than six feet tall. And finally, Probably the 10th time I was haranguing him, he stood up and he looked down at me and he said, you know, mom, you really don't know what you're talking about. I really thought you would be more open-minded and learn about something before you started yelling at me. Well, (laughs) why did he think that? (laughs) I don't know. And I said, well, how am I going to learn? And he said, well, I'm headed back to school, but you could explore. And he gave me a website uh, that was used by professional poker players to talk to each other. And so I started exploring the website and I opened a free account and then I started playing at little tiny amounts. And meanwhile, I'm still running my appraisal business and I'm playing poker at night and I, you know, build up a bankroll and a little bit more of a bankroll. And this is not like poker sitting around a table playing poker. This is poker on three monitors with screens popping at you where it really is all math and probability. Wow. And the young guys could do like 20, 30 tables at once. I could never do more than four or five. I was considerably older. I didn't have testosterone coursing through my veins and uh, my capacity was limited. But then again, I didn't have testosterone coursing through my veins. And so I could 
be more disciplined in my decision making. Wow. And I made money playing poker. I was Barbara, never- this just seems crazy to me. I know. It seems I mean, crazy to me too. But I guess in my mind, it sounds like something that's edgy and risky. It sounds scary to me. <laughs> well, you know, I didn't start off saying, let's bet the farm. I started <laughs> off, you know, playing with little bits and this and that. And I'm watching what's going on. And I'm doing this for a year um, while I'm running the business. And comes time to do my taxes. And it turns out I've made a lot more money playing poker for the year than I made running a real estate appraisal business, which was a pretty solid business and supporting us, you know, in an okay manner. Wow. And so I thought, hmm, what am I having more fun doing? Hmm, what would I prefer to do? And I thought, I really am enjoying the poker play. Now, so why I, did you why did you enjoy it so much? What was it? Well, it is exciting, of course, when you win. It is disappointing when you lose. But for me, it was also something that I could do anytime I wanted. You could sit down and you could find games. You had no restrictions on when you had to do something. You didn't have um, mouths to feed, so to speak, in terms of people who work for you and need things from you. You could be pretty self-sufficient. You could live your life in any way you wanted. And just did you, feel, did you feel at any point that it could get out of control? Because certainly with poker, again, this is something I know nothing about, but it does seem like a lot of people lose control when it comes to poker. Sure. And addiction to gambling is a real thing. And there were, you know, lots of people who did lose control and lose money that they shouldn't have lost. That is, a, that is for sure. Um, but it's not limited to online. It, it can happen, you know, Vegas or people playing the lottery, the horse racing. So all of those things are real risks. I didn't feel that that was a risk for me because I was disciplined about what limits I would play, etc. Wow. Uh, and what about your son? So you were doing this with your son? Yeah, he was doing it too. Now, he was young and testosterone driven and he made much more money than I did. And he lost much more money than I did. He mm. had much bigger ups and much bigger downs, um, but did okay with it. it. It is unexpected, I have to say. And so as a listener listening to the story right now, I wonder what is coming up because obviously this is, I'm flashing back to when I was 21 and I grew up in the Philadelphia area. And I remember, oh my God, I can go to a casino now. And it seemed like a big deal. And I remember taking $60 and going to Atlantic City. At the time, it was like a super big deal. And I remember having some fun with the $60. But um, I was very clear that that was it. Like it's it was a lot of money for me then. It seemed really risky and crazy to do that. But I did it. And it felt like a, a party. Like it felt like I was doing something fun. It was a night out. And I have almost like zero, almost zero. I can count the number of times I've, I've never done online gambling. I did play the lottery a little here and there over the years. And I can count the number of times on one hand that I walked into a casino. So again, when you mentioned this in, in our pre-interview, I, I, I was gobsmacked. I almost fell off. I almost <laughs> fell off the chair. I'm like, what? <laughs> well, that's how I felt when my son first mentioned it, but I was not informed. 
it's not like other casino games. You can actually win at poker. The house takes a percentage of every pot. It's not that the house wins. A player always wins the pot. And the house makes its money by taking a percentage. So as long as you can play well enough to win enough pots to cover for what they call the rake, the percentage that they take, you can make money at. So did you tell your friends what you were doing? Like, is this something you just said with pride? I said it with trepidation at first. <laughs> and then when I had my tax returns, I, I scheduled meetings with my parents separately and with together, my parents, and then my accountant separately. And I went and I said, I want you to look at this. I'm thinking about just closing down the appraisal business and playing poker. What do you think? Wow. And um, all of them said, go for it. Wow. Fascinating. Including my father, who was very uh, traditional and worked at the same company for his entire working life, working his way up, you know, but everybody was in support of making that shift. And so that's what I did. I found somebody who I respected in the business. I said, you want the clients? You want the the book of business? She said, sure. And we transitioned it and I shut the doors and just played poker for a while. Wow. How long did that phase go on? Well, I shouldn't say just played poker because I do have to add one more thing. While I was playing poker, I also got to know a database developer and I was doing a project to help build a database for, for another company. So I was, I was tag teaming, you know, the poker playing and the database building. And that went on poker for about six years and the, the database for the last maybe three or four of that. And then all at the same time, it seemed, uh, we finished the database project and the government in the United States decided that they were not going to allow the large poker sites to operate in the United States. And so you had um, an exodus of professional players from the United States to other countries, uh, over the border to Canada, other places. Uh, You had people staying in the United States and trying to disguise the location, and none of that appealed to me. So I I did go to casinos, playing live didn't appeal to me. It was a very different experience. You're sitting around a loud, noisy room. And I don't like loud, noisy. I like, you know, I'm more like an introvert, a hermit would be good. You know, COVID was welcome for me. (laughs) Not the devastation of it, but the fact that I actually have to go out and be in the world. Right, right. Uh, So I decided that that was not what I wanted to do. So there I was, I was 58 years old, and I had given away my appraisal business, didn't really want to start that again. Government had come in and all their infinite wisdom and shut down that the other project was done. And I said, Well, what do I want to do? So I thought about it. And I pretty much concluded that there were two areas of growth, one in information technology and one in medical. I had been a candy striper in junior high and I knew medical was not for me. (laughs) I'm just not that person. And so I set out to find a job in the IT space and I did that. And I worked for seven years with a small, smallish company uh, that called themselves more process re-engineering than tech, but it was very tech-based. And they were in a 
in a growth period and they brought me in to run their support and implementation division. Again, something so, you hadn't done before. No. And um, I remember interviewing for the job and the man who hired me eventually looking at me and saying, why am I talking to you? You don't have any background. I said, well, I don't know. You called me in for an interview. Um, I do think I'm able to do the thing that you want done here. And I learned quickly. And um, he had me take a certain aptitude test that they relied on. And evidently that aptitude test confirmed that I was not delusional in my belief that I could do this. And um, he offered me a job and, and I stayed there until I was 64. Wow. Okay. So now you've been, uh, you know, you reinvent yourself. That's really what you continue to do. And so then what happened? Well, so now I have to to, to pull together my my personal life into this story a little bit more. During a lot of the time I was at that last job, my younger child was, and it was not clear at at the time, but he was deep in the disease of addiction. When I say it wasn't clear at the time, that's because doctors kept saying, oh, schizoaffective disorder, oh, bipolar, oh, this personality disorder, and maybe he's using drugs. And there was never any real clarity as to what it was while he was in it. It does turn out that he was addicted to meth uh, for four years of that. But I didn't know that at the time. What did you notice? What did you know? I knew that there was something very wrong because his behavior was way off the charts. He was destroying his life. He was a very smart guy that I thought was going to take the world by storm. He's a, he's a wizard with computers and um, he couldn't hold a job. He was unreliable. He eventually couldn't live here. He was homeless for years uh, walking. He was one of the guys walking the streets, you know, that kind of thing. In, in no matter what you did to try to help him, it didn't really help. So I was on my own quest during that whole time to try to figure out how to save my son. And because this emerged when he was about 18, I was told that that's the age that mental illness often emerges in young men as well. And so he admitted to using marijuana and psychedelic drugs, but I didn't know that he had moved on to meth until he was in his final rehab and, and that was disclosed. So it was always this lack of understanding about what was causing this to go on. Um, but the behavior was so, so odd that I knew something was going on. So I was searching for how can I fix his problem, mm. right? That was that was a lot of my focus. And I ended up doing work on what I came to learn was my codependency. And that's a term that many people have heard. Some people don't like it, but it's it's very prevalent in our society, especially for moms, that we take our value, our self-worth, our measure of how well we're doing by how well somebody that we love is doing. We naturally take on responsibility for their happiness and their life. And we absorb guilt and ownership that is not really ours. And I was very much in that, in that space. 
and only end up ended up opening my mind to other possibilities when a doctor that I really relied on kind of hit me over the head and said, go to this group. And I went and I kind of sat there and thought, what am I doing here? Why do I want to you know, be here? Remember, I'm an introvert. <laughs> yeah. uh, but over time and patience, I came to see that this really was my disease to solve, codependency, and that whether he had a mental illness or an addiction, that was his to solve. And by disentangling the two and solving my own challenges, I could give him the opportunity to solve his. Wow. So was that the first time in the group experience that you met other parents also dealing with the same sort of thing with adult children? You know, it's hard to remember the exact sequence. I certainly went to Al-Anon and Naranon meetings, uh, and I talked to individual parents that I knew who had experience, and I don't remember what came first, second, or third. But it was the first, it was the first exposure to something that eventually ended up making sense to me. Mm. Okay, so you're slowly starting to get some clarity on how you are factoring in and how your thoughts and feelings and behavior, how all of that is affecting you. So then what did you do? Well, so so this is where it all comes together. So now I'm getting this insight into my own behavior as it regards my son. And you cannot then prevent that insight from creeping into other areas of your life, relationships with friends, relationships with family, relationships at work. Um expectations at work, uh, the ability to say no at work, the ability to own just the things that are yours to own and not assume responsibility for things that are outside your control. And so I was weak in those areas and I got better in those areas. And then the difficulty of the work environment I found myself in became really crystal clear Hmm. and undeniable. And so I said to myself, not not something I want to do anymore. Mm. Um, and so I made a change. So I left. Now, I didn't know what I was going to do when I left. I didn't know I was going to say, hey, I've retired. I'm 64. You know, I've, I've retired and that's the end of that. Or I'm going to do something else. And I went on an exploration of what other things I might want to do. And and I I took some courses. I did what kind some, of courses did you take? Let's hear this about this exploration of yours. Okay. So the first current course I took was an online marketing course. Um, and there was a guarantee offered by the person who promoted the course saying in two months, you'll make your $2,000 back or I'll double your money or something. I thought, Ooh, okay, I'm a hard worker. I'll try this. Well, you know, little did I know that I knew nothing. I knew nothing about what it was required to bring something new to the world. And so I did work hard, but there was no way I could put it all together that fast, nor was there any way I could ask that man who over-delivered on everything along the way for my money back. So there I was, you know, I had learned some stuff, but I really wasn't clear on the right focus area for me or where I was, where I was going with that. And so the next person I encountered on my journey is a woman named Marisa Murgatroyd. Do you know that name? I do not. 
So Marisa is about 4'10 and a powerhouse of a woman. And her program is called Experience Product Masterclass. And her one of her central messages is that so many people don't complete courses online. And if you want to bring something to the world, maybe you want people to actually do the work. And I did. I had no interest in putting something together that just generated sales. My interest was in putting something together that would actually get used. Uh, and so I gravitated to her message and I took her experience product masterclass. And I also took a, a smaller program she offered called Start With You. And that was a really interesting exploration that required me to go to friends and family and ask them a series of odd questions and ask them to give me the answers in writing. And I did that. And the answers that I got surprised me. And it all kind of came together in my mind. Uh, They saw strengths that I didn't recognize. Oh, like what? Uh, They told me that, that I made other people feel very comfortable in talking about their situations and what was going on. And I never observed that in myself. And so, you know, that was one thing. I don't remember all the rest of the things to tell you the truth at this point. But I love that. I love that it was an absolute strength of yours and you didn't even recognize it. And no, I didn't. You know, it's so interesting. I had that same type of experience with reviews on the podcast, iTunes reviews. And so many people talked about my upbeat personality applied to difficult topics in midlife and how it made it so much easier for them to appreciate and to apply to their life. And, you know, I, if anything, I thought maybe I'm too silly. (laughs) And then here it was being a strength and something actually helpful. So I love that that was something that happened for you. Okay. So now you have this interesting feedback. What else happened? Um, I I did a lot of self-reflection and I, I had people, you know, I still went to my local group and I had people say things to me like, how have you been peaceful through all of this? And I really was peaceful through the last four years, maybe of Eric's journey. Not at the start. I was this flurry, this bundle of activity trying to fix him, right? But I got to a point where I was truly peaceful. I was able to accept that my son was sleeping wherever he was sleeping, doing whatever he was doing, living the life that he was choosing for himself. And it was a scary and frightening life, but not anything that I could control. And I was able to actually see that we could both drown in this, or I could try a different approach for myself, that there was nothing I was doing that was helping him in any way. Mm-hmm. And it was destroying me. And so wow. I also uh, discovered that at age 60, Penn State University allows you to take any course they offer free. You don't get credit, but you can, you can take it free. Wow. And so, and so I, you know, use one of these websites that evaluate professors. And I thought I'd like to take a course, but I only want to take a course with a good professor. It's <laughs> not like I chose my topic first. I went and chose the top professors and looked. And there was one that taught comparative religion, which kind of interested me. And so I took that course that I think there was a spiritual element to all of this too, to my getting to peace and my accepting that my journey is my journey. And I don't 
really usually talk about spirituality or religion in that way because everybody has their own belief. And I don't judge anybody's belief, but it was a part of mine to get to comfort in it's going to unfold the way it's going to unfold. And so I thought, well, if you want to make an impact, is there some way you can understand how you got to peace? And so I sat down to do the work of trying to understand how I got to peace. I put it together in a program. I got, you know, five beta students who wanted to take the program. I delivered it live in a Facebook group kind of thing without any membership platform or anything surrounding it. I built it out a week ahead of time so that I could take what I learned one week to the next and apply it and found that the results were spectacular. And so that's how I ended up doing what I'm doing. And how would you describe what you do? Well, in a nutshell, it's uh, personal development. Not that anybody joins me because they want personal development. Uh, But more specifically, I help moms recognize that they matter too, and that they are allowed to have their own lives. And that when they take the steps to reclaim their own lives and love their children in a different way, it becomes possible for their children to make different choices. Hmm. As long as we as moms continue to absorb the pain, to to, to provide soft landings, to not let the universe deliver its natural consequences to the bad decisions that our children make, they are not going to choose differently. They are not going to choose to accept treatment because treatment is, it is hard when you have a mind disease. It is very difficult to get to the point where you're willing to even consider that you can live a different way and get better. And so They need to feel their own consequences and not be buffered by us, yet they need to be held in love by us Mm -hmm. and not feel abandoned. So there's a way to do that without becoming the doormat. And that's what I help women achieve. And the important thing here is that in the work I do, Susie, there is only one instance where there is a right answer. That instance is somebody is suicidal. The right answer is you call the authorities. Mm -hmm. I don't care what the fallout is. I don't care if they're really suicidal or manipulating. That's the only instance where there's directed guidance. That's what you do. There is no right answer to, should I let my child live here? Should I give my kid this money? Should I do this? Should I do that? But there are answers that are right for each person based on their priorities and their values and what is appropriate in their family. And I help them find them and consider them. Wow. So you mentioned that um, if they're suicidal, you should call the authorities. Do you have a recommendation of something uh, like something immediate that somebody could do in that case? Sure. In the United States, there's a brand new number available that models the 911 system. And the number is 988. And it's for suicide and crisis lifeline. Now, If you find that that number doesn't work for you, just Google suicide prevention and a number will pop up in your local area because I don't think that's worldwide. Exactly. Right. That's great advice. Thank you. And of course, I'll have uh, that guidance in the summary notes as well. So, um, Barbara, what's happened with your son? Well, what happened with my son is he chose recovery. Wow. That's, That's the short story. He, you know, had a number of times in and out of jail, one sentence 
but they would release him on work release and then he would violate for some reason and they would put him back in and round and round and round. And um, the last time he came out of jail, he came out of jail and had a little money available to him because my father had set up a small trust that matured while he was in jail. And he had a little money available to him and he came out and he went on a, a meth binge, I guess, and called me in a psychotic state. And I went and picked him up and there was a very difficult negotiation that went on because he really didn't want to go to the hospital. He wanted me to do something else to solve the problem, but tears from him and tears from me uh, and the boundary held that I am not a bed and breakfast. The car is not a bed and breakfast. I will take you to a meeting. I will take you to a therapist. I will take you to your uh, parole officer. I will take you to the hospital, pick one or get out of the car. He chose the hospital. And I hear lots of stories about how the hospitals do not handle things well. And there are stories where they handle it beautifully and they handled it beautifully. And they, coordinated with an expert who came in and talked with him. I was in the waiting room. I stayed out of it. And he and that woman put a plan together and off he went to rehab. And he has been navigating his journey from that point forward and making each of his own decisions. Today, he has a full-time job. He works for me part-time and does the tech for my business. He bought a house about a year ago, and then six months ago, bought another property in need of renovation and is renovating it into an eight-room sober house to provide uh, some place for people coming out of rehab to go before they go back into the mainstream to live amongst other people who are are in sobriety, be part of that fellowship. Uh, he's having quite a learning experience with that. Uh, I bet, <laughs> you know, how to do all the things that need to happen, but they've rented three of the eight bedrooms now and they're working on the lower level where the other five are. Uh, he's living a, a beautiful life now. Wow. And you know what? Your story is so interesting because it really illustrates what I, I just think is a truth for for women in midlife where you it's impossible to see how everything's connected, how every pivot you make, every decision, every change of career, uh, it's just so hard to see how it's all connected. Yet it is. It is. I can't imagine doing the work I'm doing now if there were any of those experiences before that missing. There are things I learned in each of them that are important now. And I would not wish this on anybody. I don't wish anybody to have to deal with the challenges we faced. But I also don't think I would have grown in the way I grew had I not been forced to through these challenges. Mm, yeah. So they, they turned out to be a blessing for me in that sense. Right. I love the way you put that. And I can really see that because you really had some challenges to overcome. And there were many ways to go about doing them and some would have created more pain than others. And you chose something using your strengths that you didn't really understand. <laughs> no, I didn't. <laughs> but again, sometimes that's what's at play, you know, when you just don't know what to do next. And I also think it's really interesting that in your sixties, mid sixties, you decided to start something new again. 
and to really give back this way. Yeah, the other observation I would make, you know, every time we need to make a pivot, not that we've chosen to make a pivot, but because of circumstances, we need to make a pivot. It's easy to be fearful and almost paralyzed by fear. And what what worked for me anyway was being able to look back at other times in my life where something was scary and to recognize that I got through that and none of the outcomes that I envisioned, none of the, <laughs> the scary pictures I had in my head are what actually resulted. And I spent a whole lot of energy envisioning the, the fear if I would have just pushed it aside and plowed through, you know, one step at a time, I would have saved a lot of a lot of energy. Oh, I'm so glad you mentioned that. I don't remember who said this, but I've heard it in the coaching world. Some somebody very smart must have said it that worry pretends to be necessary. And ah, right? It really yeah. does. And uh worry pretends to be necessary, but it's it's not necessary all the time. <laughs> but it's so easy to get in it. And fear has really surprised me along uh, my life too. I didn't, I never really imagined I was fearful at all. I didn't identify with it, but it turns out that it was so much a part of what was um, the emotion driving decisions. And I love how you reflected on what you were able to do rather than what you weren't able to do and to draw on that. That's so good. So good. Mm -hmm. Worry never accomplishes anything. And um, not everyone likes when I say this, but we actually have a choice about whether we want to spend time worrying or not. We can snap ourselves out of it if we want to. It takes energy. We have to make a decision to do it. We can even say, hey, I have a worry pocket. It's from five to 10 after five every day. I'm not going to worry except then. And recognize that there is a difference between worrying and problem solving. Yes, do your problem solving. It becomes worrying when there's nothing new emerging in the problem solving exercise. That is so true. And I learned that it's a great idea also to spend as much time on uh, things that create a positive emotion for you in some way as it does to spend time, you know, thinking stuff that's not helping you, that is just not useful for you. So yeah, yeah, yes. you can do that, but also do this. <laughs> yes, yes. There's a so, lot of um, there's a lot of science about the benefit of living a life focused on gratitude. Yes, and I'm not expert at the research behind that, but I believe it to be true, and that your thoughts will create. Now, I don't believe you can go sit and meditate, and all of a sudden, a million dollars will fall off the money tree. I don't think it's that direct. I think there's Personally, I think there's effort involved as well, but I do think your thoughts influence what come to you. Well, there's definitely a lot of research about gratitude for sure. And it's not hard to find. Um, we've talked right. about it a little bit on the podcast and I just love that there's so much research about it. So anything that you can do to increase the amount of gratitude you experience in your life is, is a very good thing. You know, one of the things you brought up in our pre-interview that I thought was interesting is the way um, being in midlife can really affect the way you handle some of these situations with your adult kids. And one of them that you said was really interesting to me. It's about how, you know, we at our age think about pot and how kids and younger people think about pot. 
I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit because there's a difference. Well, yeah. And I can tell you, I'm 69 and the pot that I encountered in my college years is not the same thing as what they talk about as pot today. Yeah. It is many, 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 many times stronger. It's not naturally grown. It's synthetic. It is far more powerful. And I do believe that with pot, just like with all drugs, there are benefits that some people can get from them properly used. And there are risks uh, that other people may encounter. And the problem that I see is that you don't know until you start to use a substance, if you are one of the people who is going to become addicted to it. So if you have 50 people sitting in a room and they're all smoking pot, some of them will be fine. It'll be a recreational event, no impact beyond whatever the immediate impact is. And some of them will become addicted to a substance that they fight their entire life then to break free of. And nobody knows who's in which group. It's not like anybody is choosing to be impacted in that way. Right. And so, yeah, it's a very different substance than it was years ago. Yeah, indeed. And I guess the other thing that I really am thinking about as you're telling your story is that, you know, I talk a lot about empty nest and when people are, um, depending on when they had children, of course, but in their late forties and fifties dealing with empty nest when kids leave for the first time. And that brings up so much. Uh, you touched on it a little bit with codependence, but just how we um, think about and identify with who we are and where we get meaning from and how we identify ourselves as mothers. But in in that work, I'm always pointing out to really think about the number of years that you were with a minor, a young person, a, a child, and the number of years that you have ahead of you everybody's healthy, God willing, right? All of that yeah, um, yeah. as a young adult and then an adult. And there's way more time to develop a relationship with your adult child than the 17, 18, 19 years of your relationship with a young person. And I think that perspective, it really helped me when I was navigating those waters, that transition and just getting my head around all of it. But you have a lot of time to think about the relationship you have with your adult children. And this, that you've, what you've been through developing and figuring out and changing, modifying, tweaking <laughs> your relationship with your adult child, it's, um, it was very challenging. And it sounds like now it's more rewarding than ever anticipated. Oh, it is. I could not ask for things to. I mean, knock on wood, I don't want to jinx anything. I know. Well, let's not. (laughs) You never know know what the future is going to be. Um, But, you know, going to what you were saying, I have not done a study of this, and I could be totally off base, but I do think that moms who are dealing with their only or their youngest child who has a disease have a harder time getting out of the way than moms who are dealing with an older child. And I think it connects to the empty nest concept. So if the mom has been so focused on her identity revolves around the children and this last child is leaving and she doesn't put her enormous talent and energy into fixing, managing that child's life, where does she put the energy? So it it becomes important, I think, for 
those of us who are moms to think about how we can value ourselves and what is important to us and what things do we want to do so that we're not defined just by mom of Joey. Exactly. And and what you said really, like earlier on in our talk, really, um, really speaks to this, that even if you didn't have a child with challenges, uh, particular challenges, it's still something that so many women deal with is they don't know what they want. And they have a, a huge difficulty putting themselves first. It just feels too indulgent. Like, so especially when there's difficulties with children and there could be tons of different types of difficulties, but even when there's not difficulties, it's still yeah. ch- so challenging. It can be. So um, in a sense, we're both working on the same things, helping women mm-hmm. uh, really connect with what they want. And I, your story, the other reason, like I said, that I was so fascinated to talk to you about it was you really started so many new things. You were able to be a great mom and you made decisions when you had babies on how to be the kind of mom you wanted to be and do your own particular um, type of balancing act. <laughs> and yeah. and then you continued to try new things and put yourself first and notice things about yourself and notice what you want and what you liked, and what you were fascinated by. And you kept going, like even with the free course at Penn State, you kept going and digging and being curious about who you were and what you wanted. So what kind of advice would you give to somebody who is stuck and is really struggling with making that connection with themselves? Probably the best advice I can offer is to do small experiments. Set something up for yourself where you think, well, maybe I'd like to try this. Maybe I wouldn't, uh, but I'm going to try and I'm going to try and give myself permission to stop trying if it feels too uncomfortable. So no expectation that you're going to continue it for long, just something small that you're going to try. And by that, that I don't mean I'm going to put on my calendar that every day this, this month, I'm going to spend an hour doing X. I'm talking more like Five minutes, three times this week, I'm going to spend five minutes, you know, doing X. And if I hate it, I have permission to just stop. But I'm going to keep track on a simple piece of paper what I learned from each of those experiments. We call them wins and learns. There are no failures. Your win is something that worked out beautifully for you. Your learn is something that you learned by doing that experiment. And as you do more of them, you will get a clearer picture of where your comfort levels are and what's right for you, because the answer is different for each of us. That's beautiful. So how can somebody get a hold of you? So I would encourage anybody who is facing a challenge like this to watch my workshop. And Susie will put the link to that below this podcast. It's free, it's pre-recorded, and you'll have a sense of the kind of work we do. It actually includes a a snippet of a coaching call with permission from the ladies who are being coached. Uh, Beyond that, I do have a website. You can opt in for some free things and any one of those, those opt-ins will get you on my email list. And I promise not to disappoint. You will get more email from me than you know what to do with. (laughs) You can reply to any of them and you'll hear from us. So I will absolutely put the links in the show notes. And Barbara, what is the, the main website? www.livewellandfully.com. 
Okay, amazing. Livewellandfully.com and all of the links will be in the show notes. Barbara, thank you so much for sharing what you shared about your personal story, your journey, your path, your beautiful way that you reinvented yourself over and over again. And also your story, your personal story about your son and how you were able to create an organization, a career, um, and help so many people who who really, really need you and need to hear your experiences. So thank you so much. You're doing amazing work in the world. Thank you for having me, Susie. It's been a real pleasure. Okay, that is it for this episode. Wasn't that amazing? There's just so much to Barbara's story. Don't you agree? (laughs) I mean, so much. I love how compassionate and curious she is about trying new things. And, you know, she is very open about failure, which is why she calls it wins and learns. There's no failure. There's just winning and learning. So good. Personally, Barbara's been through a lot and she has learned a lot. Even when you think back to her career path alone, there were unusual twists and turns along the way. And yes, she did them anyway. Even though sometimes it's scary, she did them anyway. So like she says, and I totally agree, you're always on the right path. Sometimes you just don't see the full picture, but by the time it came for her to put herself out there to help other parents struggling to help their adult children with challenges, she was more than fully equipped to do so. So amazing, and I'm sure you got a lot of inspiration from Barbara's story. All right, so as you know, This podcast is all about how to love your life again after 50. It's really all about coaching you to be more intentional and to incorporate mindfulness into your life as a regular practice. And mindfulness is the key ingredient to regret-proofing your life. This is how you put yourself on your agenda. And as you know, my focus as your midlife coach is to help you get unstuck, clear, and excited about your life again. So you really have to ask yourself, are you ready to do this? Because if you are, I am all in to help you do it. And if you're an entrepreneur and are finding your life just too darn busy, and maybe you're overwhelmed with what it's really like to run a business at your age, this place is for you. Maybe you're finding it challenging to be gearing up when so many people in your life are gearing down. If so, this place is for you. So if you're ready to change your life and learn the skills to unstick yourself with some masterful coaching, a top-notch curriculum, an infusion of creativity and a warm, fun, and awesome community of like-minded women, let's talk about it. I would love to help you create the business results and work-life balance that you're craving. And I know what it feels like to crave. Uh, You can absolutely be more fulfilled than ever before. So just email me your questions and let's talk about it. You can also go ahead and book your momentum call at www.womeninthemiddleacademy.com. For show notes and links, head over to www.susierosenstein.com and click the podcast tab and look for episode 294. And if you're interested in applying to be a guest on the new upcoming podcast, Women in the Middle Entrepreneurs, head over to www.midlifeinterviews.com and apply. So that is it. Thanks so much for listening. It's time for you to put yourself first one thought at a time. I'm Susie Rosenstein, and I'll talk to you next week. Thank you.